This yes. is hell. Okie doke. With mask mandates returning to bars and restaurants here in Chicago, like the bar, this studio is directly above, and proof of vaccination now also being required for the very first time. Welcome to 2020 Part 3, which means, yes, this is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time for 80 minutes every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and our podcast shortly after at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. This Is Hell also airs in an abbreviated version every week on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. We are now also streaming at the freeform, non-profit, non-commercial, United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. In a few minutes, we will reconsider the latter years of the life of abolitionist Frederick Douglass and his time spent as the ambassador to Haiti. When we think of Douglass, we may think of him as a former slave who gave passionate speeches opposing slavery, or we may remember him as the author of the powerful autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, written by himself. We may even remember him as the publisher of the very first anti-slavery newspaper in the United States, the North Star, which first went to the presses in 1847. Or we may remember that he was the first black U.S. marshal in the United States. Who knows? We may have even heard that Douglas was the most photographed man of the 20th century. But what is forgotten is that as a 71-year-old in 1889, he was appointed ambassador to Haiti not long after the United States finally recognized the nation of Haiti, despite the country winning its independence way back in 1804. And if we do remember his time as Haiti's ambassador, it's likely we remembered as a failure. But how much were the problems facing Haiti Douglas's fault? For instance, why would he support U.S. imperialism in Haiti? And for that matter, to what degree were the problems Haiti was facing in the late 19th century like the challenges it currently faces in the early 21st century. We'll find out shortly when we speak with Peter James Hudson, who wrote the Boston Review article, Frederick Douglass, an American Empire in Haiti. Toward the end of his life, Frederick Douglass served briefly as U.S. Ambassador to Haiti. The disastrous episode reveals much about the country's struggle for black sovereignty while always under the threat of U.S. empire. Peter is Associate Professor of African American Studies and History at UCLA. He's also the author of Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean, which sounds like a fantastic book. Follow Peter on Twitter at Dark Finance. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how was your holiday break? Oh, it was very nice, thank you. And what was your favorite gift you got this year? Oh, I'm 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 using them today. What's oh headphones? <laughs> oh, guess again, other part of the body. Uh, socks, <laughs> long johns. Oh well, look at you. Did you get the whole suit or just the pants? Oh no, just the bottom. Oh yeah. man, I got a union suit a, f- a few years ago for. Uh, uh, Christmas, and it was the greatest thing ever. That flap, though, does get a little bit problematic at times. So, what else is new about you? Oh, not much. So, um, I watched, uh, you know, I'm a big old cinephile, so I yeah. watched an old movie over the weekend called Prime Cut. Did you ever see it? Lee Marvin, 
uh, Gene Hackman, Sissy Spacek. Anyways, he, Lee Marvin's like a gangster in Chicago and he has to go to Kansas City. On his, this is like in the early 70s. On his way out of the city, they like heading through the South Loop to the expressway and okay. they pass a statue of like a policeman overlooking the expressway. And I like paused the film and, and like had to go look up where this what the statue was because I'd never seen it before. Uh-huh. Do you want to take a guess that yeah, no idea what it's about. Okay, so like the policeman is like from the eighteen hundreds. Okay. And so I it took me a really long time to find it. But the policeman or the police uh, the police whatever found Office. the you know, officers founded this statue because it honors the dead policeman from Haymarket. <laughs> I did hear about this before. <laughs> and like, you know, the statue's been around for like a hundred and some odd years and it's been moved like seven or eight times because people you know, were constantly destroying it. Yeah, or people to. keep on vandalizing yeah. So now so now it doesn't get vandalized anymore because I think it's on the front like right in front of the police station. Exactly. Police headquarters downtown. That's <laughs> yes. right. They had to move it there. That's right. So is this a movie with Carol O'Connor in it? No. Okay, because there's a Lee Marvin movie with uh, Carol O'Connor. They remade with Mel Gibson, and it was called Payback. It's uh, sure, sure. a Borman movie, and uh, it's fantastic. And that's what I was hoping the movie was, because I think Gene Hackman might be in that one, too. He seems to be in a lot of I saw a little bit of Miracle on 34th Street, the original one. Yes. And you can hear the wheels of the platform that the camera is on as it's following people down a hallway. There are so many production mistakes in that movie. You can constantly see the shadow of the camera on on the walls in many scenes. Well, sometimes they just like knock those movies out and it was like one take. Exactly. And it's, you just forget because, you know, you watched it as a little kid. You just kind of don't pay attention to all those mistakes. But when you're older and you're like, why am I constantly hearing the grinding of wheels every time this camera is going down a hallway? So my holiday break was full of rapid testing, followed by traveling to spend time with family, followed by more rapid testing before traveling to spend time with more family, then returning home and getting more rapid tests to determine if we could have a few friends over for a New Year's Eve smorgasbord. And, and despite both me and my non-wife having negative results, we still decided to postpone said smorgasbord to a later date and to not venture out to ring in the New Year's as we are doing our best to not be infected by the Omicron variant. Sure, it's not as deadly as Delta or other previous variants, and yes, we are fully vaccinated with all three shots, as are our family and friends, but we were in contact with a few people who had not yet been boosted, and the last thing we wanted to do is give the gift of the virus during this holiday season. So really, kind of a paranoid holiday season, but more importantly than my holiday, during the resurgence of the deadly COVID-19 pandemic, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what would make your life 1% better? 1% better. That is such an odd, small, minuscule amount to make your life better. But Alex does write some great questions from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want.
There's the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, as well as the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Richard will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation with Peter on Frederick Douglass's time as the ambassador to Haiti and what that reveals about Haiti and the history of U.S. imperialism. Again, the question from hell is, what would make your life 1% better? What would make your life 1% better? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is, according to new research, dot, 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 there is no cure for a hangover. Chuck, what have we been doing for the last 20 years? Or is there? (laughs) There might be. On New Year's Eve, numerous media outlets ran stories with headlines like The Guardian's, quote, most hangover cures have little evidence behind them. Study finds. As The Guardian reports, scientists say they have evaluated studies looking at 23 different substances alleged to help prevent or treat a hangover, but found all of the remedies had low quality evidence for how they worked. The study revealed only seven of the substances showed some sign of potential benefits for overall hangover symptoms, with the participants giving a lower hangover symptom score, recorded as a percentage compared with a placebo. Okay, makes sense so far. Of these seven substances, the largest and strongest effects were seen by clove extract, the anti-inflammatory drug tofenamic acid and pyrotinol, a substance resembling two vitamin B molecules attached together. Participants taking a clove extract pill while drinking had, on average, a hangover symptom score of 19%, compared with 43% for those who took a placebo pill. That makes this hangover this week's hangover cure with our apologies, there is no hangover cure. Although, clove extract, tofenamic acid, and pyrotinol have shown some success in addressing hangover symptoms. <laughs> so, there is a cure for a hangover, despite the headline saying there is no cure for a hangover. And my favorite part about this is how The Guardian starts the article with, Scientists say... They don't say what kind of scientists. I don't know if these are astrologers, if these are physicists, if these are biologists. I have no idea who these scientists are. Did all the scientists get together on this study? I have no idea. It's always a bad sign. It's they always generalize bad. like that. It always is. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2022. If you would like to run the board as Richard does and as Alex does as well, and as Sebastian will begin doing this year, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start your new year with a new gig running the board here on This Is Hell? It's the next best thing to winning the lottery. 
and it's a lot easier. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. It could make you 1% better. It could make you 1% better. <laughs> Maybe even two. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday in our Patreon podcast, now on Thursdays at the same time. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. And we actually pay our board operators a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board op here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. Coming up, a re-examination of the final years of abolitionist Frederick Douglass. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what would make your life 1% better? And while on break, I stumbled upon a story about ongoing settler colonialism here in the United States that includes, get this, the robbing of indigenous graves, your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Frederick Douglass spent a lifetime fighting against slavery. He published newspapers denouncing the practice. He wrote poignantly about the evil trade. He rose to international acclaim, condemning forced bondage. So it would only make sense that he was against any kind of dominance of one person over another, let alone an entire nation institutionalizing any form of subjugation. But when it came to U.S. imperialism, Frederick Douglass was, oddly, very much a supporter even more odd, he supported U.S. imperialism in Haiti, where slaves had risen up and won freedom from their former slaveholders. Here to help us have a better understanding of Frederick Douglass, U.S. imperialism, and Haiti's ongoing external challenges, Peter James Hudson wrote the Boston Review article, Frederick Douglass and American Empire in Haiti. Welcome to This Is Hell, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, and good morning from Los Angeles. I can't believe you got up this early. That's great. can I? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Peter is Associate Professor of African American Studies and History at UCLA. He's the author of Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean. You can follow Peter on Twitter at the amazing Twitter handle of Dark Finance. You write that at the age of 71, Frederick Douglass was appointed ambassador to the Republic of Haiti by the administration of U.S. President Benjamin Harrison. Douglass uh, had helped uh, stump for Harrison during the 1880s presidential elections, and the position was something of a reward for the elderly abolitionists. So how would you describe the political clout that Douglas had at the time he was stumping for Harrison? Was he popular or was he divisive? Uh, I would say that at, at, at this moment in time, uh, Douglas is, is an incredibly popular figure. I think, obviously, as you've uh, said at the beginning of the show, the kind of popularity of the uh, the, the the autobiography, the fact that he was um, this uh, incredibly photographed man gives you some sense of, of the kind of kind of both domestic and international scope of of uh, of his personality. I mean, he's a celebrity at, at this point in time. So I think, um, you know, he he was important in terms of uh, helping Harrison's election because of that popularity, kind of channeling that into uh, Harris's election and then, you know, was was uh, rewarded, you might say, uh, with this position in Haiti. And you write that when Harrison ran as the Republican candidate for the 1888 election, Douglas's support was integral to securing northern black votes and defeating a black congressional candidate opposing Harrison's man in Virginia. So to what extent was uh, Douglas's endorsement of Harrison just based on the fact that Harrison 
was Republican as Abraham Lincoln was. Why did why did the black congressional candidate oppose Harrison? Why did Douglas oppose the black congressional candidate? These, these are very good questions. And on, honestly, I, I don't think I can go too far into the, the kind of nuances of the, the domestic debates um, uh, or, or the kind of domestic uh, challenges that that uh, Douglas was a, was a part of. Really, the, the, the interesting thing for me about it is really trying to expand Douglas outside of the U.S. into, uh, into the, the kind of bulk of the essay, as you know, um, and, and the question of, of, uh, of, of Douglas and Haiti and his relationship to, to U.S. Imperialism, but I think that there was that 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 lingering uh, loyalty that that black voters had uh, to to the party of Lincoln at, at this time, which you know Douglas Douglas supported, and uh, um, which which went a long way of, uh, with black voters at the time. And you point out that uh, Douglas wanted to have the position of recorder of deeds as a reward for his service. Instead, Secretary of State James G. Blaine offered him the position of minister resident and counsel general to the Republic of Haiti, afterward adding charge d'affaires of Santo Domingo, the capital of the Dominican Republic, to Douglas's portfolio. So why did Secretary Blaine select Douglas for the role of ambassador to Haiti rather than Douglas getting what he wanted, the recorder of deeds role? I think this is uh, a, a strategic move on uh, the the part of Blaine and on the part of Harris. I think, um, uh, as as you pointed out at the the uh, uh, the top of the episode, um, uh, Haiti won its independence uh, through a slave revolt uh, uh, or a revolt of enslaved Africans that gained its independence on January first, eighteen o four, and through the nineteenth century, f- uh, for most of the nineteenth century, um, the the United United States didn't recognize uh, Haiti, and, and this led to a number of kind of problems internally and externally in terms of um, access to trade uh, and uh, uh, with with the United States, and that contributing to Haitian underdevelopment. It was only during the Civil War that Lincoln, in a kind of cynical move, um, recognized both Liberia, uh, which was fought, founded by the American Colonization Society and and uh, populated um, initially by uh, or, re, or or settled by by African Americans. Um, in the 19th century, that that Lincoln recognized both um, uh, Liberia and uh, the Republic of Haiti as a way to gain favor um, with with uh, African Americans during the, the Civil War, um, and so for Blaine, for Harrison, the the idea uh, in in appointing in, in appointing Douglas is to basically kind of try to curry favor with the Haitians by placing uh, a black man uh, in that that position of representation an attempt to curry favor with the Haitians Haitians as opposed as well as to curry favor with with African Americans and I think we have to look at this in terms of uh, of the broader uh, uh, kind of 19th century policies of US imperialism in in the region we have a situation where um, most of the Caribbean region, the Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, um, as well as the British West Indies, Jamaica, Trinidad, etc., are really being contested um, at this moment by the by uh, uh, with the European powers. There's obviously the internal struggles for independence, but there's also the attempts by uh, European powers to kind of maintain a foothold uh, in the islands after slavery and as the sugar industry uh, begins to dis- decline. 
And at the same time, the United States as a rising military power is trying to assert uh, their kind of influence uh, in the region, especially through the Monroe Doctrine. So there's a way that the the appointment of, of Haiti, uh, excuse me, of Frederick Douglass to the um, the position of, of Haiti is really a strategic and a kind of an early strategic move to put a black face um, at the front of U.S. imperialism uh, in, in the region. I hope this is something we can talk about a little bit later in the show or in the interview. But I think that that for Blaine, then there's there's this importance of both putting uh, Douglas forward to kind of appease um, uh, uh, the domestic population, um, as well as to kind of work with the, the Haitians themselves to kind of to get get the Haitian population on their side with with such a kind of popular uh, and internationally renowned figure, but all again in the in the service of of U.S. imperialism. I think the other point I want to make about this is we can't forget the importance in terms of this kind of geopolitical strategy. Uh, for the United States, of the 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 their kind of plans for the the Panama Canal. Obviously, the the canal um, uh, is is opened in 1915. Um, the the United States is able to stage a coup in Panama in 1903, which which creates the Republic of Can- uh, of Panama, which secedes from Colombia. But earlier in the 19th century, there's designs by the United States for an interoceanic uh, uh, route through the isthmus of of Panama that would be important both for commercial commercial traffic uh, from the Atlantic through the Caribbean Sea to the Pacific and on towards Asia. Um, and, and when you create that kind of commercial uh, highway, you also needed the kind of military support for it with coaling stations and naval bases along the way. And so um, all of these things, I think, are behind the, uh, the appointment of, of Douglas by blame. And it's important to recognize, as you were pointing out, that it was a coup that overthrew the Panamanian government to get the Panama Canal. And at this point, when Frederick Douglass is, uh, has his position in uh, Haiti, he is also working with a coup government in that area. How successful in advancing U.S. imperial in- interests was sending black ambassadors to newly recognized republics like Haiti and Liberia? Did, did what you describe as paternalism and cynicism toward those republics, did it work? Uh I would say yes, yes and no. And I, I think, you know, one of the things I, I just want to back up a little bit here to, before I get to your question, and when we talk about, about Panama, you know, one of my, my interest in the question of Douglas and Haiti emerged out of the research on, on uh, my book, Bankers and, and Empire. And, and I had some uh, uh, professors and colleagues and friends who were like, well, you need to look at this, this 19th century piece on the U.S. relations uh, with, with Haiti um, and through Frederick Douglass, because I was really really interested in the role of, of, of Citibank in the early 20th century um, in, in terms of trying to gain control of, of Haiti and prompting the United States occupation of Haiti uh, in 1915, which lasted to 1934. One of the important figures in the United States occupation of Haiti is a Citibanker by the name of Roger Leslie Farnham, who basically created what was called uh, the Farnham Plan, uh, which was a plan that he, as, as a vice president of the Citibank, sent to the, the Secretary of State uh, Jennings Bryan, basically saying that Haiti needed military occupation in terms to, to stabilize it and to protect the United States interests. I bring this up in relationship to Panama because while it was Roger Farnham in 1915 or 1914 who created the Farnham Plan, which led to the 
the United States occupation of Haiti. Farnham was also um, working with New York lawyers in 1903, in 1903 which led to the, the, the coup. So there's a kind of lineage of imperial figures uh, on Wall Street and through the State Department in, in the Caribbean at this time. In terms of how successful U.S. policy was, I think we could say, if, if you want to look at look at it, it cynically, um, it was extremely successful in that uh, it allowed a number of U.S. commercial interests, a number of U.S. capitalists to gain access to uh, Haitian and other Caribbean markets through the establishment of um, uh, steamship services or or concessions on 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 sugar or or in some cases if if the concessions fell through they would be paid uh, the American capitalists would be paid directly from the Haitian Treasury for for uh, uh, future losses effectively or um, and this was in part because of of uh, of these black figures there on another level you could say it was. Uh, it was unsuccessful um, in this case of Haiti specifically because the United States had designs on Haiti to create a to to um, establish a permanent base uh, in the Republic um, at Mole St. Nicholas, which is a, uh, a a township on on a bay that fronts the Windward Passage, which is the the, the passage between Cuba and uh, and Haiti. And the Windward Passage is an extremely important strategic location in, in the Caribbean because it basically fronts out to the Atlantic Sea and uh, creates a direct line towards the Caribbean Sea and towards the Panama Canal. Um, and one of the reasons that Blaine wanted Haiti, wanted Douglas uh, in, in the position because they had had long-term designs, designs on the Mole St. Nicholas. Um, and, you know, uh, as, as I kind of go into in, in the article, um, Douglas quickly realized that that this was one of the reasons he was put in power there. And he was immediately conflicted about this. And as you, you point out, Douglas was not someone who who uh, was an anti-imperialist. He believed in the mission of the United States abroad. He believed in American exceptionalism. He had argued that the United States, um, you know, earlier in, in the, uh, the century should uh, annex the Dominican Republic and partly use it partly um, as a safety valve for the immigration of African-Americans um, after the Civil War to kind of relieve that racial pressure in the United States. He, he was uh, in favor of uh, setting up a permanent naval base at Samana Bay in the Dominican Republic. And he, he also generally supported uh, both U.S. commercial and imperial interests in, in Haiti and elsewhere in the Caribbean. When it came to Mole St. Nicholas, there was something that was very distinct for, for Haiti, which was written into um, one of the early Haitian constitutions in the, in, in the 19th century and which emerges out of Jean-Jacques Dessalines' uh, uh, proclamation to the, the people of Haiti, which was that no non-Haitian could ever uh, own property in, in the island, that, that the, the, the soil of Haiti would remain from, uh, could never be dispossessed by, by, uh, uh, by a foreigner. And what the United States wanted, and what's something that they've been pushing for you know, more than uh, 200 years now, 
now is this attempt to rewrite the Haitian constitution to allow the dispossession of Haitian territory um, through, uh, through in, in the case of uh, 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 Douglas's time, um, uh, a military base, but also just through the possession of Haitian land by American corporations. To what extent then would the U.S. control Haiti by leasing Mole St. Nicholas? And was Douglas aware how much the U.S. could control Haiti and its people through that lease? I don't I don't think that that the control of the Mole St. Nicholas was necessarily about controlling Haiti. I think it was something that was kind of limited to the, the larger uh, Caribbean strategy of the United States at, as the time. They wanted the lease so as to set up uh, a coaling station and to kind of uh, make sure that that, as I said, that there was a kind of military presence there. But I don't think the Mole St. Nicholas was something that was facing towards the rest of the of of, of the Republic um, as a means to uh, to control it. Um, and I think the kind of desires to, to occupy Haiti um, really emerge um, after Douglas's death and, and into the um, uh, into the 19th century when, or into the early early 20th century, excuse me, uh, when we start looking at the kind of era of high dollar diplomacy, um, when there's a really a desire on, of of Wall Street uh, to protect their interests um, in in Haiti, but also in Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, the Dominican Republic, Panama, and other places. I want to get back to Mole St. Nicholas in just a moment, mm -hmm. but uh, I want to backtrack to something you quote uh, Douglas writing in his acceptance speech of the role of his role in Haiti. Quote, my influence in the opinion of the president would be the most potent we could send thither for the peace, welfare and prosperity of that warring and dissatisfied people, the people mm -hmm. of Haiti. And you add the State Department had other ideas regarding Douglas's influence, hoping to use it to undermine Haiti's independence while strengthening the U.S. expansionist project in the Caribbean. So was Douglas under the belief that he was bringing peace, welfare and prosperity? Was he a tool of misleading propaganda, putting a trustworthy face on imperialism, or was he just naive? I would say he was he was a little bit of a little bit of both. Um, I think that you know if you the the quote you read to me is 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 so important in many ways because it it you know looking back we can understand the kind of ambivalence that that uh, Douglas had, and I think that that um, uh, many African Americans in the nineteenth and early twentieth century had about Haiti. Obviously, there is there's a strand of of uh within african-american thought that sees haiti as a kind of a uh, symbol of black liberation um and and this symbol became material in many ways when you saw the attempts by african-americans to to migrate to haiti in the 19th century and and this was aided by the um the proclamation by again Jean-Jacques Dessalines that any any slave, any any enslaved person who set foot on Haitian soil would be free. This appealed to to Black Americans. The idea of a Black uh, Republic appealed to to Black Americans. The idea of the first Black independent, uh, emancipated Republic in in the New World uh, appealed to African Americans. At the same time, from 1804, there's an incredible propaganda machine within the United States that's painting Haiti as as a kind of atavistic land of anarchy, chaos, constant wars. Um, you know, some, some would say that the moment that uh, abolition occurred in Haiti and the French were defeated, uh, Haiti returned back to a kind of primitive 
savage African state, and I use those words uh, very deci- uh, decidedly. And so what we see in, in that, that quotation is this sense that, yes, Douglas um, has kind of imbibed a lot, a lot of that, that propaganda. I mean, he's, he's, he understands Haiti to be, uh, at this moment, he understands Haiti to be uh, an independent black state. He understands its, its importance, but he also sees some of the kind of internal uh, conflicts. He's not immune, I think, from uh, the, the general uh, kind of white supremacist pop- propaganda uh, that's that's being spread about Haiti through the 19th century after after 1804, and so in that sense, I think he's he's not immune to it, and that that would I I, I would suggest that in some ways he's he's a bit naive about about what's going on here. Not necessarily. I think he's he's naive about the degree to which how Haiti is represented is. Uh, partly due to that machinery of po- propaganda, but he's also naive about U.S. Uh, interests, U.S. Uh, 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 kind of desires around Haiti. And I think he's he does believe that the United States, as this exceptional country, um, and and in, to some degree as African Americans as an exceptional people, um, can have a kind of benevolent role uh, in what's been called the the, the Black Republic. Um, and so I think he kind of walked into this position, not you know, a little bit naively, not not assuming that the <clears throat> excuse me, the the United States would have other interests in Haiti or that that they would treat Haiti with the, the, the kind of degree of paternalism um, and, and in some cases outright racism uh, that he was to see once he arrived there. So well, were peace, welfare and prosperity in Haiti in opposition to U.S. interests in Haiti at the time? And in your opinion, do they are they still in some ways in opposition to U.S. interests in Haiti? That's that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, and. I would, I think, I would say they are. I would say that that um, that there is something to be said about maintaining Haiti as uh, as a place that is is not peaceful, um, that that isn't prosperous. Um, you know, right now and for uh, you know the last thirty or forty years, we've always heard that. Uh, Haiti's the poorest country uh, in in the hemisphere. There's this whole rhetoric around it, and I'm never quite sure. Well, what what does that actually mean? Or what what the scale? What 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 kind of determinants are we using to understand Haiti as the poorest country in the hemisphere? But what goes along with that is many many people um, have made a lot of money. Uh, off Haiti. Haiti is is the poorest country in the hemisphere, but it's a place where you have been seeing carpetbaggers from the United States and, and Europe and Canada, um, uh, and in some cases Brazil now, uh, arriving over since basically 1804, who have made a lot of, of money uh, off uh, off Haiti. The, the example that I'm most familiar with is the, the National City Bank of New York, the uh, present day Citigroup, you know, where the, the vice president uh, of the organization in about 1910, 1911, uh, a figure by the name of Frank A. Vanderlip, he said that Haiti is becoming for the bank a very profitable piece of business. Um, on on fairly limited investment, so I think there there is something to be said about about maintaining um, uh, this this republic um, in a in a kind of prone state um, in a, in a chaotic state 
in, in, and in some ways, it seems like that the, the attempts to destabilize Haiti, to maintain Haiti's, maintain Haiti's instability, um, are, are part of a kind of political economy of crisis that allows foreign nations to uh, exploit, uh, extract from, and accumulate from Haiti. In supporting U.S. business interests in Haiti, was Douglas supporting U.S. imperialism? And would Douglas have recognized that support of U.S. business interests is supporting imperialism and thus undermining the peace, welfare, and prosperity of the Haitian people? Again, I, I think I think it, I think yes. The the short answer to that is is yes. And I think again, the the there's a kind of naivety on on Douglas's part when he first arrives in in Haiti and not recognizing that I think he's seeing a lot of kind of commercial interactions, the expansion of 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 capital of, of U.S. capitalism into Haiti um, as potentially beneficial to both parties. You know, increase mar- mar- increase maritime traffic between. In the United States and Haiti, Douglas saw as benefiting the United States, as benefiting Haiti, as benefiting uh, business people and, and uh, farmers and merchants on on uh, on both sides of the roots. Um, but I think what he began to see was that these were uh, unequal relations. They were un, uh, exploitative relations and that there was a kind of circular movement wherein um, you know, he is, is kind of greasing the wheels of capital to, to uh, of, of private capital uh, to, to further exploit. He, as, as the ambassador, is greasing the wheels of private capital to further exploit Haiti. So he then becomes a representative. Uh, 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 well, they both become the representative of imperialism and, and Haiti. I mean, I think what, what we see here is the very kind of close ties between uh, capital and, and the state where the, the kind of uh, legal and diplomatic uh, and military uh, infrastructure that, that Douglas um, helps to, to put in place um, allows private capital to exploit uh, to exploit Haiti, and so I think the the question of imperialism kind of toggles between uh, uh, the, the kind of entangled relationship between private capital uh, and the state in Haiti. So, is this the military industrial complex before it's called the military industrial complex? I, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily make that uh, uh, an analogy. I mean, I think that the kind of expansion, the kind of post World War II expansion of of the military industrial complex is something that we um, we we weren't seeing to, to the same degree in in the 19th century. Um, you know, it's it's I over the break the one the one book I had a chance to read was uh, by the late uh, Yale historian Robin Winks. Uh, who who wrote a book called uh, Cloak and Gown um, on Yale and uh, and the CIA um, and it was astounding um, though perhaps it shouldn't have been surprising to me to see that after you know from the, uh, uh, the organization of the Office of Strategic Services during World War II to the birth of the CIA in 1947 and its expansion through the Cold War um, the degree to which academia uh, the, uh, the the university um uh was was tied to 
um, to the expansion of, of the U.S. security state. And I don't think we're seeing that happening to the same degree or, or um, we don't see that happening um, at the, in, in the 19th century. I think that the, the birth of the military industrial complex comes out of a number of very uh, kind of uh, kind of specific historical conjunctures marked by um, everything from the the uh, the Russian Revolution to to the the supposed defeat of, of, of fascism um, so I think what we're seeing here is is an early kind of skirmish in the United States attempts to um, uh, uh, create a, a hemisphere dominance uh, at the end of the 19th century. I think what we see with, with Douglas is a kind of prelude to uh, the, the dollar diplomacy of the, the 1910s and 1920s. Um, if we can say that there's a, a I, I wouldn't want to make the argument that there's a direct line between, um, you know, Douglas and Haiti in the end of the 19th century and the birth of the military industrial complex uh, in the uh, in, after the, the the Second World War, but I do think we need to to see a, a kind of through line in terms of uh, of a hist a long history of of U.S. exploitation of Haiti that Douglas is certainly a part of. Oh, sorry, missed my button there. So you uh, you also point out that Douglas's early days in the U.S. legation were long and tedious, and he often returned to the ambassadorial residence well after dusk. He was consumed with attending to both the petty entreaties of the U.S. community in Haiti and with helping U.S. firms broker concessions and contracts with, and in some instances, press monetary claims against the Haitian government. William P. Clyde and Company initiated the most significant of these efforts. And later on, you add that Douglas was increasingly disgusted by the dictatorial attitude of Clyde's negotiator, their agent, a South Carolina native who did not bother to conceal his contempt for the Haitians or for Douglas. He demanded Douglas personally intervene with the Haitian government via Joseph Antenor Fermin, the great Haitian intellectual and statesman, when then serving as Secretary of State for Exterior Relations in the coup government of Hippolyte. Fermin uh, strongly objected to this concession. He saw it as a drain on the Haitian treasury, especially in light of other claims by U.S. citizens on Haiti's resources and finances. When informed of Fermin's position, the agent told Douglas to return to Fermin to offer him the assurance that Douglas would not press upon Haiti the payment claims of many other American citizens against the Haitian government if Clyde received the concession. And you point out that Douglas was aghast. You quote Douglas later recalling, the proposition shocked me. It sounded like the words of Satan on the mountain, and I thought it was time to call a halt. So this is in reference to a passage in Deuteronomy when Satan tempts Jesus, saying, all these things I will give you if you fall down and do an act of worship to me. How were, in your opinion, the concessions like Satan tempting Jesus with riches in exchange for Jesus' eternal worshiping of Satan? How tempting were they? For? <laughs> I, I love this, and I, you know, I think part of the thing about uh, you know writing this 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 piece, um, if you ever get a chance, it's it's really worth uh, reading Douglas's North American Review articles um, um, on the. Uh, on his time in, in Haiti, because the the rhetoric, as as you're kind of pointing to, of Douglas is is absolutely in, incredible. The, his his writing is is so wonderful, but I think that um, 
how tempting were they? Well, I think I think that th- this is a crucial moment for for Douglas. This is a moment where he could have um, he, he you know he he could have uh, fallen for the proposition, and uh, and and he could have you know this this is a point where he could have um, made the decision to fall into line with the demand of uh, of Clyde and his his agents and begin to then. Um, you know, work in a different way in relation to the, the Haitian government. And I think this is where we see a, a really kind of strong uh, uh, kind of, I think this is a kind of moment of awakening if you you want to, you know, this is a, in some ways uh, as much uh, Saul on the road to Damascus where where uh, Douglas kind of realizes what's, what's going on here, realizing realizes the position he's in and, and realizing that uh, through the kind of veil of naivety that he had in terms of the relationship between the United States and, and Haiti, um, I think he begins to understand what he's put there for um, and that he has to make a decision about who he is and what relationship that he wants to have both to the Haitian people um, and to the United States. So at the time, to what extent was being an American defined by your loyalty to and support of U.S. imperialism, especially imperialism being promoted by U.S. business interests through unfair negotiations and arrangements that benefited U.S. interests and undermined those of, in this case, the Haitian people. Was being an American being a proud and unrepentant imperialist? Were Americans explicitly proud of an American empire? Again, that, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think we can we can, you know, it, it's funny because I think that one of the there there's still this ongoing question that historians have, um, which is the question: Is the United States imperialistic? Is there even such a thing as an American empire? Especially considering that the, the United States has been supposedly this, this anti-imperialist nation. It's been uh, a beacon for democracy. It fought off the old colonial powers of, of Europe. It supported national self-determination um, after the First World War. Um, but I think we have to look at this, this question of imperialism in, in a couple of ways. First of all, um, if we want to think about the, the, the process of the bloody process of settler colonialism that, that settled the West, um, that uh, expanded into, that, that annexed Mexico, um, the, the kind of levels of, of patriotism um, that, uh, that accompanied those things that, and that, that fed into the idea, your idea as, as an American were, were certainly there. Um, and then of course, when we look a little bit later with, with the, um, the, 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 the uh, Spanish Cuban American war, the annexation of, of the Philippines, the, the occupation of Cuba, uh, the takeover of Hawaii later on the, the purchase of the U S Virgin islands, all the kind of events that happened after 1898, for for many people in the country that that these these victories this expansion was was part of the the kind of lifeblood of of american citizenship which isn't to say that there wasn't a tradition of of anti-imperialism uh it, it wasn't is isn't to say that there was dissent uh against all of these these actions 
Um, but I would say that there is this, this idea of, of territorial expansion, of, of a kind of an American exceptional presence in the world, a belief in the United States as the, the kind of righteous guardian uh, of, of, of the hemisphere, if not of democracy worldwide, becomes a part of, 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 uh, of, of U.S., of the identity of, of U.S. citizens. Um, and I think we also have to understand I mean, if you look at um, uh, the, the, the great W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, book, uh, The World in Africa, where, where he looks at Europe and, and he, he makes this, this claim um, that, that European identity, <clears throat> the history of European identity is basically built on the bloods of African and other colonized peoples around the world, whether it's through the slave trade or the, the, the straight up colonization of Africa. And I think that we have to, at, at one level, understand that, that whether we, if we get away from a kind of rhetoric around what US uh, identity is or, or the kind of, the, a kind of um, a spiritual almost idea of what U.S. identity is. What is U.S. identity in a materialist, almost political economic sense? And it's built in not just expansion, but in the kind of wealth that emerged from that expansion and exploitation. So the short answer to the question then is, I think that, um, yes, that the idea of that the, the sense of imperialism is part of uh, a kind of U.S. patriotic identity. On the Mole-St. Nicholas negotiations, you write that on January 1st, 1891, Secretary Blaine wrote to Douglas instructing him to begin negotiations with the government of Haiti to secure a long-term lease of Mole-St. Nicholas for use by the United States, as you were pointing out earlier, as a coal st- coaling station and naval station. At the same time, and much to Douglas's surprise and chagrin, Blaine informed Douglas that his role in the negotiations would be a subordinate one. Blaine had appointed Rear Admiral Bancroft Garrardi, commander of the North Atlantic Fleet, as the lead negotiator. Douglas was merely to serve as a black prop in the negotiations. So what influence, if any, did Douglas have on the negotiations? Because if he did not, to what degree can we hold Douglas accountable for those negotiations? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. Again, I think um, to some degree, we we now looking at it historically can't really hold Douglas accountable for it. We we can we we can see very clearly um, through his his commentary on on the incident that um, he did he was put in this subordinate position. Uh, he was basically undercut uh, by by blame. And and he was there just as a kind of black figurehead. Um, and so he, you know, I think at this point, I think he had kind of crossed a line where he realized that that there was little that he could do. His diplomatic influence was was waning. His uh, influence in um, in Washington was 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 waning if it hadn't completely waned at that point. And uh, and and so it's it's difficult. I don't think you can say that that uh, Douglas is responsible. But he carried, I think, uh, you know, as we, we kind of move forward in the in the article, a kind of moral burden of 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 what happened. Uh, there, because he still, I think, felt a responsibility um, because he was serving in in the post um, in Haiti, and and because of that, uh, it, it it was a kind of fraught and existential experience for him. 
And you mentioned this sense of fealty he had to the United States and loyalty to the Harrison government. So and that stopped him from resigning from his position because of his position within these negotiations. So to you, what does that sense of fealty to the United States and loyalty to the Harrison government reveal about Frederick Douglass? Excuse me. I think, again, I th- a great question. Um, I think we, I, I see it as he, it, it reveals a, 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 a one level of man who's partly naive. It seems to me in some ways surprising given his history, given what he's seen about the United States that he um, could get to this point um, with without a kind of trace of, of cynicism and then have his eyes opened and um, and be kind of surprised and, and shocked um, by, by what he's seeing. Um, but I think it also suggests the, the kind of ambivalent loyalties of a soldier, right? Of, of somebody who is, um, who's in some ways been indoctrinated to believe in someone, but still has a, or, or, or an institution, but still has a kind of ethical core to understand when that institution is going, going wrong. And I think this is where we begin to see that kind of, uh, kind of um, uh, ideological fissure uh, for, for, for Douglas. And I think there, there's, you know, I think there's also this way that, um, he's beginning to really, well, I don't, I don't want to be too extreme about this, but he's rethinking his, his position, not just as a, a representative of the United States, but as a black man, um, as, as an African-American representative of the United States, as an African-American representative of the United States in relationship to this black country. And, um, you know, the, the kind of theory and practice of, of, of pan-Africanism as it emerges in the, the 19th century suggests that there's a kind of underlying connection between all black people and all that. And, and some would say that's a cultural connection, but in, in many ways it's it's a political connection. It's an economic connection that's based on the, the kind of shared ties of, of slavery, um, but also the, the shared ties of exploitation after emancipation. And I think this is a moment where Douglas is beginning to, to, to realize that um, in this instance and at this time, that, it, that his fealty is perhaps not to the United States government, um, but to the Haitian people. So eventually, uh, Doug, the negotiations fail. Uh, U.S. Milit- uh, U.S. fleet is in the harbor, uh, being very... Uh, showing a lot of intimidation towards the people of Haiti. Once the U.S. fleet leaves, the negotiations collapse, and Douglas eventually resigns his post. You write how they were relieved. There was great relief of Harrison and Blaine, Secretary of State Blaine, when Douglas resigned his post. Why were they relieved? They had basically undermined any influence Douglas had in the negotiations. So what did they gain by not allowing Douglas to be, as you described him, a prop? So what, what did they gain by by not allowing him? Right. Why well, not, I think. Why, sure, go ahead. They, why would they be relieved at his at him leaving if he basically didn't have any power? I think that that he became an embarrassment. I think that his 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 position there um, suggested that the United States didn't have authority in Haiti, um, and 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 that his position there, in some ways, and I, I mean, this is not something that. I necessarily saw in in the documentation, but I think his 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 position there, his his failure as a his supposed failure as a black man in Haiti, 
in Haiti, excuse me, has a kind of uh, domestic uh, uh, implications uh, for 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 uh, the Harrison government and for the U United States government in general. This this idea that um, you know exposing the kind of ruse of representation um, that that sees them send this black man to represent the United States in this black country. And when it doesn't work, that kind of redounds, I think, on, on public opinion in the United States among African-Americans, the sense of, of um, uh, the kind of hypocrisy of the United States government in terms of dealing with these, these smaller and, and darker nations. So at the end of the day, Douglas becomes an embarrassment because of his uh, seeming uh, incompetence and impotence in, in Haiti. You also uh, point out, you write that the New York Times reported that they also revived the idea raised when uh, he was first appointed in Haiti, that the Haitians would have little respect for a black diplomat. You then quote the Times using what you call the use of the ridiculing diminutive was the paper standard in printing Fred Douglas was not likely to be more impressive to the ordinary Haitian than any other man with a black skin. Yet, as you write, the Haitians seemed very aware as to who Douglas was and had been following his career. Is the Times correct in a very racist way that may, they may or may not recognize that it did not matter what African-American man was sent to represent the United States as they would only be used as a prop, as you described? Would it make any difference who the United States had sent? Uh, yeah, well, so I think it, it would it would make a difference, but I don't think it's necessarily a difference based on race. I think what would have impressed the, the Haitians is somebody who was uh, obviously more, more, you know, look, I think the 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 the. There's a memory of Douglas in in Haiti, and there is a respect for 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 Douglas in Haiti. People in Haiti in the 19th century had had uh, kind of followed his his career. There was a lot of love for him, a lot of respect for him, and I think that that still uh, exists to um, uh, to to this day. But I think the 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 Times is 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 involved in a, a series of kind of racist contortions here, because on one level, the what what the Haitian people want are competent diplomats who are going to be fair, regardless of, of the color of the skin. And so for the United States to send Douglas there, it in some ways is suggesting that, that the Haitian people are only able to see uh, or to engage on, on the level of, of race, on this kind of affinity of, of, of skin color. Um, and that's part of the kind of paternalism that, that's built into that. Um, and so I think that they're not, um, you know, what the, the, the New York Times quote suggests to me that what they're saying is in some ways there's a kind of internal problem with Haitians that they're not that impressed with a black diplomat which you know we, and and I think we can understand that for a while in Haiti in in the 19th and, and early 20th century there was and I don't I don't know how much the, the New York Times is aware of this but there's a kind of emerging light-skinned uh, 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 commercial, uh, largely commercial, and to some degree political elite, but a largely commercial elite that that is very much involved in in controlling the country, and and many of the Haitian elites, as much as they're. Um, they fought against France. They'll send their kids to France. They'll send their kids to school in in Paris. They want to speak the 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 kind of um, most perfect French in their their salons. They're not interested um, in the Creole of the the Haitian 
peasantry. So to some degree, I think that this, this quote is almost suggesting that um, that this Haitian elite is not interested in, in blackness. They're not interested in, in black people. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, um, sorry, I just lost my, my train of thought there. Um, at, at the end of the day, I think that they're, um, well, let me just leave it at that. I think that, let me just leave it at that because I completely <laughs> lost my train of thought. I apologize. No, that's okay. Uh, you, uh, you write as uh, the white world would never tire of punishing Haiti for the sin of black sovereignty. Douglas said, Haiti is black and we have not yet forgiven Haiti for being black or forgiven the almighty for making her black. In your opinion, how much does Haiti and her people still suffer from never being forgiven for being black? Is Haiti's biggest challenge throughout its 217 year history, white supremacy globally? I, I, I mean, the short answer to that for me is 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 yes. I think that when Haiti um, uh, gained its independence from France in in eighteen o four, this was this destroyed the uh, the kind of obviously the French colonial economy. Um, they defeated Napoleon's armies. Um, they they pushed France into a corner that made Napoleon basically give up uh, on its Caribbean uh, dreams of Caribbean or American empire and turn to uh, to Africa. It sent shockwaves, as many historians have have written throughout the Atlantic world. It it sent fear uh, amongst the planter class um, who saw in the destruction of the the plantations of Haiti, a a vision of the destructions of the plantations of of Brazil, of Cuba, of of Mexico, of, of the United States. And on one level, this is an economic threat that the the end of slavery is a threat to uh the kind of global economy of of the planter class but i also believe that there's a a a deeply racist component to this that exceeds the mere fact of economy you know as brutal as the economy of slavery was but that 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 could not see in african people um, a, 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 a vision of humanity that was equal to the humanity of white people that could not see an African people. And I'm talking about African people. I'm talking about about Haitian people, um, and and you know black people globally could did not believe in black self government, in African self government, and 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 so that the Republic of Haiti has been a challenge to the white nations of of the world to the the hegemony and power of the the white nations of the world and i when i look at the history of of haiti haiti um especially in relationship to the united states whether it's through the work through frederick Douglass's um uh encounters with haiti um and with with u.s imperialism whether it's through uh the the era of dollar diplomacy um and and you know, the, the question of Citibank in Haiti during the United States occupation, whether it's in response to um, the rise and fall of Jean-Bertrand Aristide um, or up to the kind of contemporary day uh, kind of conflagrations that we're seeing in terms of uh, the U.S. and the international relationship to to, to Haiti, the, the international community's relationship to Haiti. These are not strictly economic or diplomatic questions. The 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 um, efforts to undermine Haitian sovereignty 
um, are, are is not simply because they they want sugarcane or they want access to um, to the the Caribbean Sea and the, the Panama Canal. To me, there's been a, a racial element to this that has been so profound and so repeated uh, since 1884, 1804 that we can't understand um, the, the the history of Haiti in the wider world without understanding the history of uh, Haiti's challenge to global white supremacy. Just a couple more questions for you. You cite historian Benjamin Quarles writing, mm-hmm. with the acute sensitivity of a small nation in a predatory world, Haiti feared that even a toehold on her territory by a foreign power, in this case the United States, would mark the beginning of her loss of sovereignty. Does this acute fear of loss of sovereignty still exist to this day? And if so, what role does that fear play in the challenges that Haiti is currently facing? I, I think it absolutely plays uh, a role. I mean, I think that uh, it, it, it played a, a huge role in during the United States occupation from 1915 to 1934. And there's an argument to be made that many people have had been making that Haiti has been effectively under military occupation um, through the, 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 the kind of proxy forces of the United Nations since about 2004 up to 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 the present day. Um, and so I think that uh, uh, it's it's not a fear to some degree. It's it's a reality that that the, you know we can ask right now. Um, you know the the United States um, with the number of other nations through through a kind of coalition called the Core Group has been very much involved in um, choosing uh, who's going to be elected president in Haiti. Um, they've been involved in in supporting one candidate over over another they've they've been uh involved in you know controlling the the economy through economic uh, uh reconstruction and aid and everything else so at, at the end of the day very quickly um it's it's not a fear it's it's a reality that that i think douglas saw at the end of the 19th century and has come to uh come to fruition in our century One last question for you, Peter. We have been speaking with Peter James Hudson, who wrote the Boston Review article, Frederick Douglass, an American Empire in Haiti. He is Associate Professor of African-American Studies and History at UCLA. Check out his book, Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean. I know our listeners would be very interested in your work. Uh, You can follow Peter on Twitter at Dark Finance. Our final question for you, as we do with all of our guests, I promise, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response you write the u.s press encouraged douglas suspected by clyde and company himself turned on him and clamored while defending black sovereignty even as he served as a representative of the united states it is an indictment of the misaligned allegiances of far too many contemporary black politicians that they do not how do you see black politicians allegiances misaligned in a way that douglas's were not you know, when Colin Powell died, um, I was stupidly, I mean, I guess like Douglas, naively surprised at the kind of outpouring of, of grief from within the Black community and specifically members of the Black elite who saw Colin Powell as, as one of us, as uh, one person told me. And it, it surprised me because I understand there's a great story of Colin Powell as, as a Jamaican immigrant who went to the city University of New York and, you know, emerged into the kind of highest echelons of, of, of American power. <clears throat> but the, the biography uh, of, of Colin Powell 
is one of of blood of blood at the end of the day. I mean, his involvement from everything from uh, from murdering people in Vietnam to the debacle of of the Iraq war. Um, and he doesn't shy away from that being his history, but he also sees it as I, I mean, I'm not, I don't know how he sees it. The man is, is obviously not with us anymore. But but it, what, what he, we don't see in a figure like Colin Powell, what we don't see um, in in a figure like um, uh, uh, Lloyd, Blank, uh, not Lloyd Blank, the, the current uh, um uh secretary of defense is we don't see any kind of doubt about that mission we don't see any kind of reflection on the rightness of of american mission uh, we we don't see any kind of um uh so at the end of the day support for the darker races the smaller countries the poorer people of of the world in the in that mission it is at the end of the day an unbridled support for u.s imperialism douglas to me is is for all the kind of difficulties and and flaws that emerge around his personality in in this in this uh, incident is somebody who says i cannot do this that my allegiances cannot be with power, that as, as a righteous person, I have to align uh, with, with the Haitian people um, and I have to make a break there. And it, it meant that it damaged his reputation and it damaged his career. And unfortunately, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, the kind of uh, black figureheads in power are not willing to take that risk. Um, and these are times when I think that the risk is needed more than ever. And uh, I wish we had more uh, uh, Frederick Douglasses in the world um, and fewer Colin Powells. Peter, thank you so much for being on our show. Peter James Hudson wrote the Boston Review article, Frederick Douglass and American Empire in Haiti. He is the author of Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean. And you can follow Peter on Twitter at Dark Finance. Thank you so much for being on our show as our first guest of the year. And I hope you have a very, very happy 2022. Happy New Year and thank you. And I wish we could have talked a little bit about Lee Marvin and Haymarket. See? See? All right. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate being on the show. I'm going to bug you in the future to have you back on. Sounds great. Take care. All right. You too. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. Seriously, prove me wrong. Send me an email at chuck at thisishell.com. This is hell. If what you just heard from Peter James Hudson was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that Yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which now streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Again, the Patreon podcast is now moving to Thursdays. Or you can show your support completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what would you make, what would, sorry, what would make your life 1% better? 1%. Okay. Walter B. answers, fewer memes like this. Burn. Oh. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, that was my commentary. I see. All right. Okay. <laughs> I was like. What is the meme? What's the image on the question from hell? Um, a bunch of uh, pictures of beans. Okay. <laughs> I think we know who doesn't want to win this week. <laughs> 
surprise. Um, Greg G answers, 1% of my body weight in cheese. All right. Like you're, <laughs> it's kind of gross, but... What would make your life 1% better? Borky B answers, a very small guillotine. <laughs> okay. I guess he has a very small dictator that he wants to <laughs> decapitate. Krimsky K answers, mechs to the max. All right. Warren L. answers, televised public hangings. Wow. Jeez. I would not make my life 1% better. Som S. answers, hearing my answer read out loud on This Is Hell. There you go. Now it's 1% better. Not two, not one and a half, just 1%. Wojciak answers, Splenda not causing poop slurry. <laughs> Wait, that's more like 3%. <laughs> <got> gross. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> RPD answers your mom. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Barrett M answers a kiss on the cheek from Jessica Chastain or Jennifer Lawrence. Wow. All right. That's specific. <laughs> what would make your life 1% better? Sean answers what in the British is this? I have no idea what that's all about. <laughs> I don't know either. And he spelled British wrong, but that's just a typo. I don't know. Aaron D. replied with a uh, picture and a link to a vintage end, end table that he's been looking for, I think. All right, then. He wants it, that end It's in a city, so mm. it's $100. Mm. Rush out and get it. There you go. 1% better at that end table. <laughs> And that's it for today. Two end tables, you get 2% better. <laughs> we'll have more of your answers later this week. Again, the question from hell is, what would make your life 1% better? What would make your life 1% better? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, or you can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sicky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. In Rotten History, January 4th, 1960, 61 years ago Tuesday, the French novelist, essayist, and philosopher Albert Camus had just spent the holidays in Provence with his family and his publisher and was on his way back to Paris. Camus, author of The Stranger, The Plague, and The Myth of Sisyphus, and winner of the 1957 Nobel Prize for Literature, had traveled to Provence by train with his wife and two kids to celebrate the holidays with his friend and publisher, Michel Gallinard. But for the return to Paris, he had been persuaded to ride with Gallimard in his car in rotten histories full of such, in retrospect, poor choices. Camus saw his wife and children off at the train station and then joined Gallimard, riding in the front passenger seat with Gallimard's wife and teenage daughter in the back, about 65 miles from Paris, as they passed through the small town of Villeblavin on dry roads at what should have been a safe speed. Gallimard lost control of the car and went into a tree. Let's see, dry roads, safe speeds, and it's 1960, so I'm betting there were no seatbelts in use and the likelihood of drunk driving is far greater than it is today. The woman in the backseat survived the crash. The women, I should say, in the backseat survived the crash, both Gallimard's wife and daughter. But Camus was killed instantly. Gallimard died of his injuries a few days later. Found in the car was the manuscript of an unfinished novel by Camus that would not be published until 1995 under the title The First Man. Born and reared in French-dominated Algeria, 
Camus had encountered some controversy among the political left, not only over his ambiguous position regarding Algerian independence, but also for his public opposition to the Soviet Union. So somehow he was fine with imperialism and colonialism, but not so much when it comes to authoritarianism employed by other nations. In 2011, an Italian journalist claimed that his death had been, that uh, Camus' death had been caused by KGB operatives who sabotaged the tires on Gallimard's car. But most experts have preferred to view the accident as an appropriate manifestation of the random, randomness and absurdity that Camus had so often written about in his work. For his own part, Camus had once said, quote, I am for the left, despite myself, and despite the left. In other words, Albert Camus would have comfortably fitted in as a guest here on This Is Hell. Richard, what else is happening in Rotten History today? On January 5th, 1950, 71 years ago this Wednesday, an airplane, and you know, January is winter, and an airplane doesn't bode well. No, it does not bode well, and it's rotten history. <laughs> an air, 71 years ago this Wednesday, an airplane carrying the Soviet Air Force Air Hockey uh, ice Sorry, hockey ice hockey team. Oh, th th that'd be hilarious. If, if it was it. an air hockey team, that would have been really great. I didn't right. even know the Soviet Union had air hockey. <laughs> I'm going to start over again. January 5th, 1950. 71 years ago this Wednesday, an airplane carrying the Soviet Air Force Air Hockey Team. Ice hockey team. Ice hockey. I can't get I know, that right. I know. Soviet Air Force Ice Hockey Team to a match in Chelyabinsk, Russia was forced by heavy snow and wind to divert from its intended landing at Chelyabinsk to another airfield at Severlask, some 130 miles away. There, the crew tried four times to do a landing approach without success. On the fifth try at landing, the plane crashed. The hockey players, their team, their team doctor and Masur, and six crew members were all killed. Wow. And they don't, it doesn't really seem like they had much of a choice there. It's not just bad choices in rotten history. I mean, you're just trying to land a plane and there's a horrible snowstorm I mean, going on. Eventually, they'd run out of fuel. Eventually, so. yeah. And uh, I'm still wondering about the uh, Soviet technological capabilities of their air hockey team because I <laughs> think we need to keep on pace with that cold war of air hockey technology. Finally, in rotten history, on January 7th, 1972, 49 years ago Friday in, Min in Minneapolis, the poet... John Berryman walked out onto the Washington Avenue Bridge over the Mississippi River and jumped off, hitting the riverbank and ending his life, unbelievably missing the river entirely. Berryman was 57 years old and had struggled with depression, alcoholism, and suicidal thoughts ever since his father's death by suicide 45 years earlier when Berryman was 11, which must completely suck, but... My dad wasn't suicidal, so what explains my depression, alcoholism, and suicidal thoughts? Berryman had been awarded a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Dream Songs, a collection of 385, sometimes controversial poems, most written in the voice of an extremely troubled and conflicted alter ego named Henry. Berryman had once replied, I am not Henry. I pay income tax. Henry pays no income tax. And bats come over and they stall in my hair. Henry doesn't have any bats. No word on if Henry had any hair. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Richard, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Uh, I'm not quite ready for that. Uh, would you like but, to tell me who it, like me to tell you who it is? No, I got it. Right. Um, 
somewhere. They're right down there. There we go. Historian Nicholas Mulder on his book, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. That's something we've been discussing since the very beginning of this show when it came, when it came to uh, economic sanctions against Iraq, which was a humanitarian disaster. And do we know who will be our final guest? We do not. Mr. TBD. All right. But uh, Jeff Dorchin will be doing a moment of truth. So when traveling, I like to support local journalism wherever I go by purchasing as many local newspapers as I can. In the past, I also listened to local news and talk radio as well as watch local news on TV. However, with so many local stations replaced with national programming and fewer and fewer people having access to local TV stations, one of the rare opportunities you get to find out what is happening wherever you happen to be is the local newspapers, which are diminishing in size and value despite their prices continuing to rise. One local paper I read over the holidays did not have a single piece of local content, publishing only wire stories from the Associated Press, although they were about somewhat local events happening not quite locally, but several counties over. The thing I enjoy most about local papers is how I will stumble upon news stories that I would not find otherwise. For instance, the day after Christmas, the Detroit Free Press ran a front-page story with the headline, Nature Creates Big Threat for Up North Burial Site. For those of you not from the Great Lakes region, up north is where those who live in the city and suburbs go for summer vacations and weekend getaways, often to what they call a cottage or cabin, despite it looking very much like a suburban home, except with wood or faux wood paneling seemingly everywhere. It's the touristy area they visit, a place where they rarely consider the consequences of their actions, or the year-round, uh, in, on the year-round inhabitants who are often mired in the poverty and inequality tourism often brings. From that headline, Nature Creates Big Threat for Up North Burial Site, you might think the story is about climate change and its impact on, I don't know, cemeteries, I guess? But notice they did not say cemeteries, but burial sites, which is often a dog whistle for sacred ground of indigenous people. Of course, they could have conveyed that message by not using the term Up North Burial Site and in the same amount of space using the word native, which is crude, but at least you know what the article is about, which is supposedly the threat nature poses to indigenous burial grounds. The problem is, that's not what the story is about. At least that's not what it's about until the final few paragraphs. What it's really about can be found in the sub-headline, which is, For years, the Bay Mills tribe has dealt with grave robbers. Now Lake Superior looms. Again, Lake Superior's role in the story is mentioned early on, but the writing moves on from the natural impact on indigenous sacred burial grounds to the grave robbing rather quickly. Apparently, robbing indigenous graves is still something that happens, and on a surprisingly regular basis. Mourners are reported to have been visiting graves of loved ones and non-indigenous show up, taking pictures and videotaping the mourner, mourners, which leads the tribe, to, tribe members asking them that they not be recorded while in this sacred place, in this sacred action. Can you imagine how the media would react if non-indigenous were visiting the gravesite of a loved one and someone just started recording their grief without permission? If that's not bad enough, white, uh, while mourners are grieving, non-indigenous will walk up to gravesites while the mourners are grieving right there and take whatever mementos have been left on the, for the dead without any consideration of this place's sacred nature. They walk all over the graves without any consideration of those they trample upon or their loved ones who are standing right there watching them. The tribe has gone to great lengths to keep people out, putting up a fence surrounding the area, but that fence keeps getting torn down and it doesn't keep out the grave robbers and 
I mean real live grave robbers. Tribe members say they often find evidence with new holes dug and whatever the grave robbers could find on the dead was now gone. Tribe members report how tourists arrive with metal detectors, often looking for copper jewelry that is buried with the deceased. The detector detects metal, the tourist begins to dig, they find native jewelry, and they steal it. And that's what it is, theft, and sell it to the highest bidder. The local tribe sees this form of ongoing settler colonialism on a regular basis, and they cannot stand guard all day, every day, at what is called the Old Indian Burial Ground, as it's known. A marker states it started in 1841, but the tribe says it's been there since the mid-17th century. One tribe member tells the story of people taking mementos left on graves by loved ones while mourners are grieving. As the tribe member is telling that story, a car pulls up with tourists who get out and start taking permissions of the graves again without asking anybody's permission. So the reporter actually witnesses this happening. But here's the kicker. Tourists who have come to the area to frequent the local indigenous-owned casino will come to the burial ground, steal something left on a grave, and take it to, to the casino with the hope it will bring the gambler good luck. A tribe member even tells the story of someone pulling up in a red sports car and returning a relic that they said they borrowed. Again, what would happen if, say, on, I don't know, Memorial's Day, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, 4th of July... Would-be gamblers went to your local cemetery and took American flags left on veterans' graves as good luck charms before heading to the casino. The media would be up in arms over such sacrilege. But it doesn't even cross the minds of these grave robbers who are engaging in one of the more disturbing aspects of ongoing colonialism. The erasing of a culture. That's what the article is about, grave robbing and the impending threat, and not the impending threat of erosion, although that finally does get some coverage in the lengthy article's final few paragraphs. Instead of the headline being, Nature Creates Big Threat for Up North Burial Site, far more accurate title would have been, Sacred Indigenous Ground Threatened by Grave Robbers, or even, Colonialism Continues to Threaten Indigenous Culture. Of course, it could simply be, this is hell. Thanks to our guest today, Peter James Hudson, who wrote the Boston Review article, Frederick Douglass, an American Empire in Haiti. Follow Peter on Twitter at Dark Finance. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks to Alex for booking today's and all this week's guests. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History, this week's Hangover Cure. With our apologies, there is no Hangover Cure, although clove, clove extract, tulfanamic acid, and pyritinol have some success in addressing hangover systems or symptoms. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.